Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today we're talking all things training within the industry and who better to talk to, and I'm very happy to introduce you all to Jim Mackey. Welcome, Jim, to the show. Well, thanks for having me, James. I really appreciate it. No, great to have you on, Jim. Now, if you want to introduce to all our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from, and what title you hold. Yeah, sure. I work for the Zoological Society of London. Um, My job title is Animal Behaviour Management Officer, and so my job really entails overseeing the training enrichment and other kinds of behaviour-based husbandry programmes across our two zoos. And I work for a small team called the Evidence-Based Animal Care Team, which incorporates animal welfare, diet management, so nutrition, zoo science, and myself, the uh, behaviour management. And we work together in a a collaborative way across all of the animal teams, really, and and curatorial teams across the two zoos. And our job is to provide objective recommendations to improve animal welfare in, in our two zoos. Absolutely amazing. Sounds like a cracking role now no one simply rolls into that no one gets lucky enough to be handed out a free pass everyone generally has that journey moment those goals those keystone life moments i guess you could classify them as which really allow them to get into the role they're in today do you have them jim unlike a lot of probably your contributors i've never worked for another zoo in a kind of full-time permanent capacity i've spent lots of times in other zoos and i've you know helped lots of people and lucky enough to work across different zoos but i've worked for zsl since 1999 so that's uh, many years I started out volunteering in the animal team and I was on the uh, hoofstock section funnily enough that's where I met my wife Jackie she was my um, supervisor on that day my very first day working at the zoo and you know here we are 20 24 years later with Francesca my little girl between us so it's been brilliant you know so I've been very lucky working at ZSL because of that and then I was a volunteer and then because I was working full-time as a volunteer I then got to know a lot of people and I realized there was this great job that I didn't even know existed at the zoo which was training animals for demonstration for educational demonstration and so my background training birds for falconry was perfect for that and I had an interview with Andy Hallsworth who's now working at Bannam Zoo in Africa Alive and he gave me a job so he gave me my very first job in the zoo industry permanent job and so I'm so grateful for that and we had such a cool team it was me Mark Haben who's now down at Wildwood and Rob Goodchild who's now at the Suffolk House Sanctuary and we worked together with this I mean it's just so much fun back then in those days it was a different sort of world working in zoos and yeah we had we had some very very good fun times um animal training was a bit of an underused discipline in the zoo in terms of animal welfare so it was just used for demonstrations really um a few things were going on and so mark and i looked at that and developed a new role which was this animal training officer role which by the time he became zoo manager he was able to implement so you know again really grateful to mark for helping me on my uh, chosen career path there which was great but you know so many other people you have to thank don't you when you're thinking back to your your own 
journey and the first animals that I worked with in that role it was a secondment to start with the animal behavior training role and that was working with our two new Sumatran tigers in a new project and so Tracy was my supervisor there Tracy Lee and uh, and Malcolm Fitzpatrick who's now senior curator of mammals at London Zoo and ZSL um, helped enormously with that and so it just went from there you know that was um, that was my sort of journey through London Zoo and into working across the two sites and it's uh, it's been fantastic that's absolutely amazing what a journey and I think I can speak on behalf of everyone you are a true name in the UK and, and worldwide for training and what it represents a real leader within this field well as kind of you'd say so I feel like I'm more catching on other people's coattails to be honest you know there's so many people in the industry that have gone before me you know the likes of Annette Peterson that I know you're interviewing for one of these podcasts amongst many others yeah I mean I, I'm really privileged at the moment because I get to serve the community in a number of different ways so I help to form the Biaza Animal Behaviour and Training Working Group that my colleague Kim Wilkins um, now chairs. So that was a real privilege to get that uh, up and running with the team at Biaza. And now I'm focused on working with Annette Peterson and the other guys in the EASA Animal Training Working Group. And I serve that as vice chair. And that role is to teach on the EASA Academy. And the specialist role that we teach there is animal training, you know, the, the basic stuff. We do do those courses, but we also have a big focus on how to maximise animal welfare and potential through our training programs, which is an area I would say is my real passion. Also, it's important for me to point out that when we developed the role of animal behaviour management officer, which it is now, prior to that, me and a, a load of like-minded keepers, so this is a kind of a grassroots level, we're all just zookeepers, formed a group called the Behaviour Management Committee. And we have one at London and one at Whipsnade. And at the time, it was just to kind of improve communication and collaboration across the animal teams. We might have animals that were being trained over here in this section that we had over here, and we could then pass on our knowledge and experiences. And then gradually that developed over the years, and we did presentation evenings, and we got a, an enrichment budget. Really, the reason why animal training and enrichment was really incorporated as a part of our animal management strategy, if you like, or daily management, was really to do with the Behaviour Management Committee. And I've, there's too many names to mention. I've had so many amazing chairs, co-chairs and representatives over the years, and uh, they all know who they are. And that's um, so important in the journey of animal training and enrichment at ZSL was the, uh, was the Behaviour Management Committee. Some truly great words there, Jim. Some great organisations, great people, and some great work overall. Some really, really really good stuff going on so uh, yeah credit to yourself and those amazing people alongside you now with regards to your role with regards to that first voluntary role you got was it always destined that way was zoos always your thought was animal training always your thought or was there always maybe that other route potentially there well so before I came to work um, within the industry my previous work I mean I, I was 24 years old when I started at London Zoo before that I'd worked in a number of different animal industries if you like so I was working in dog kennels and and in, uh, I was working in a pig farm for a year, neither of which sort of necessarily thought was a long-term ambition, if I'm honest, but it was just something that I really wanted to do because I wanted to work day-to-day -day with animals. It was just my passion from when I was a child. And from there, I, I suppose that's where I developed the knowledge that I was going to be working with animals every day. I'll be honest, a lot like a lot of people that work in zoos, my real passion at the time was conservation. You know, I really wanted to find an angle where I could make a difference in, in that field. But if you don't come from an academic background and I didn't I didn't go to university do sometimes feel that, that kind of angle isn't open for you or that route isn't open for you and actually I just thought maybe it's a bit selfish just to work with animals every day because it's just so much fun and I should be doing more you know but actually I, I came to realize that you can contribute you know huge amounts 
by participating in the daily care of animals. And then perhaps even more importantly than that, then sharing some of your love and passion of animals with community that visit our zoos. You know, that's that's probably where, if I'm honest, I feel like one of our biggest, you know, missions, if you like, in zoos is generate a passion and an interest in nature. And you can do that at a zoo every single day because you're working with these amazing creatures. You can tell everyone how brilliant they are. And if you've just inspired one or two people a day to go away and, and think, you know, aren't animals amazing? I want to look after them. Then you've done in my opinion, you've kind of done your job as a zookeeper on top of all the, you know, the husbandry stuff that you're expected to do as well. I couldn't agree more with you. Engaging and inspiring our guests, our future keepers, and generally anyone on this planet about our amazing wildlife and about the good work zoos are doing is the true role that we serve alongside our animals. So no, exactly that. And uh, once again, some cracking words. Now, the lead from this, do you have any tips? Do you have any little sort of little bits of knowledge that you could maybe pass on to your younger self or someone listening about your journey and maybe what you've learned along the way? It's always a journey. It's always a, a roller coaster. Before I started working in the zoo, I wasn't in a great place. I was um, working on a building site. So I'd done a lot of animal stuff I traveled around the world and you know self-financed those trips largely just to go and see animals in their natural habitats because it was just again like a lot of people that work in zoos just so animal crazy you just want to see them all over the world so I went all over the place and saw cool stuff but then you know I kind of hit a bit of a brick wall and ended up back in London on a building site and just wondering where I was going to go ended up seeing this advert for a volunteering role at uh, London Zoo and because I'd done the care stuff in my past it was clear that the pathway I should be taking is into the animal care and that's the way it worked out. And I worked, I managed to save up and volunteer full time for a couple of months. And within that time, then you get your foot in the door, you meet the right people, and then you can get these opportunities for full time employment. But I suppose if I could give my younger self any tips it's like stick to your guns you know you once you've got an idea if you really really want it and you're patient and persistent and you've got enough passion um, for the subject matter I'm not saying you're definitely going to get it but you just got to keep pushing and my advice would be just it'll be fine just work really hard absolutely and I guess expanding from this once again is there anything you've maybe learned throughout your career so far from those moments which haven't gone to plan, those, I guess you call them mistakes, and how you've turned them into a success and a way to move forwards and progress yourself further? Yeah, you know, like I said, there's no straight line in your career progression. For me, I had a really specific incident. At that time, I was um, what we call deputy team leader. So it's like an assistant manager, I suppose, of a section. I went through a very difficult period at that time. But I think it enabled me to grow as a person, but also grow in my career. And to be honest, I think that might have been the one major catalyst helped me become the person I am today, but also in the role that I currently have. Essentially, what it meant was that I think it helped me because it stopped me feeling that I needed to be a manager of people. And I could just focus specifically on what I was good at in the animal care field. Because I think one of the big issues in the industry, and I bet loads of people speak about this, is that in order to progress from a zookeeper, the only path for progression is to become a manager of people. You know, lots and lots of people that I've met on my journey have, have said the same thing to me. Is I never wanted to manage people. I wanted to look after animals. And yet in order to, to fulfill a bit of ambition, to make a few more quid at the end of 
the year, you have to manage people. And so that's something I think the industry definitely needs to address going forward is can people be specialists, progress without the need to manage people? So that incident for me helped me identify that, okay, now I'm going to take a different path here. Instead of managing, I'm going to be focused on one specific area. And that really helped me. Yeah, some really nice words there and really nice of you to open up to us, Jim. So thank you for that. Now, this can and will probably explode the podcast episode. I want to ask you all about what actually is animal training. We all kind of know what it's about. Target sticks, clickers, you know, you've got that positive and negative reinforcement alongside the other two. What exactly is it? What What is training? The world is your oyster, Jim. Go for it. It's a great question because training, in essence, you could argue that it's quite a simple practice. But actually, what it is, is an applied version of a scientific principle. And the scientific principles that we are reliant on and we base all our training programs on is the science of behavior change. This is now a natural law. So it's a bit like gravity. You know, no one questions the fact that the apple fell from the tree and the reason why we're standing still on the earth is gravitational pull. It's the same essence with training. All these things that we use in behavior, like you rightly say there, the operant quadrant, it's all at play at all times. We tend to focus on one part of it, which is called positive reinforcement. But in actual fact, every time we interact with an animal, this stuff is happening, whether we like it or not. We can formalize those situations and we can say, today, I'm going to get my target and my clicker and I'm going to ask an animal to perform a behavior on cue. And then I'm going to use positive reinforcement to you know, make sure that the chances of it happening are increased in the future. And so that is the area that everyone thinks is what training is. It's like the positive reinforcement element. But we know more and more now that there's so much more going on. And in fact, as, uh, as good trainers, we really need to be far more switched on and have a deeper and more profound understanding of behaviour science in order to, to really maximise our training success. And I think that's an area where we are working really well, actually, in the Biaza community at the moment. I think we're doing a great job at trying to put that message across. I think, I can't remember, I think it's either Ken Ramirez or Bob Bailey said, training is simple but not easy. And I think that sums it up quite well. Really nicely summed up and you can really hear the passion in your voice about this topic, which I'm, I'm absolutely loving. Now, with regards to training then, to really elaborate from this and to build it up, obviously training can encounter animals with behaviour issues or stuff that you want to try and counteract. Have you come across any any examples that you can maybe give us and the, you know myself and the listeners? Elaborate on this to give us a few examples of training and how you've put it to work to, to aid animal welfare and to aid our animals in our zoos. It can be as straightforward as we have a crocodile that we want to crate train. And that crocodile we'd attempted to crate train on land because that is our thought process is we build the crate, we put it on land, we get the crocodile to come on land and go in the crate. But Problem solving can be as simple as understanding the physical and cognitive abilities of the individual or the species that you're working with or both. And so our crocodile, we realized quickly that the land area wasn't the optimal place to teach this animal this new behavior. And so we designed a crate that could be submerged in the water halfway. All the animal has to do then is to learn how to target train which is a prerequisite skill for more or less anything, and then use that targeting behavior to swim into a open mesh cage, at which point um, the, the guys, Iri, who's now up at Chester, and Luke Harding, who did this training, who's now at Singapore, could just pop a little gate behind it, and then we have an animal in isolation. 
Now, the real reason we needed to do this training was because every time that we needed to either move the animal from one place to another or even let an electrician in to come and service the, the light fittings, it needed to be placed under manual strain. And that might happen two or three times a year. So instead of having to do manual strain, we wanted to crate train. When we realized that crate train on land wasn't easy, we problem solved that and said, well, let's just ask it to swim. And it was like that. There's an area of animal training that we're really keen on promoting at the moment, which is called errorless learning. And I'm doing the um, the speech commas or whatever you call those, because errorless learning is essentially trying to reduce the amount of trials you ask the animal to do and reduce the amount of errors that you do as a trainer in order to gain success or maximize your chances of success with an animal. And normally that's to do with the way the environment is set up. That's one major part of it. So I would say problem solving with animal training really does start way before before you've even gone into the training scenario and tried to train your animal. It's normally something to do with changing the environment. Absolutely. Some really great words there and some really great examples. I think you're hitting that on the head. Everyone can train and everyone can really embrace themselves into understanding what their animal needs. But alongside, and we'll go into this a bit later on, but obviously that accreditation scheme you've set up and having those people there who can guide you and allow you to really understand your animal can only further our animal's welfare and our zookeeping level as a whole so some truly truly great stuff to come and and ongoing at this moment in time to elaborate off this then do you have any hacks do you have any little secrets that you picked up along the way with regards to animal training and hopefully what can help myself and the learners along our journeys and, and making our lives easier. Do you know, equipment, I think people think about that too much because I think really the biggest hack that I could offer is really simple and that is antecedent arrangement. If you can modify the environment to make your training more likely to succeed, you know, that better than any particular type of equipment or training technique that you can think of. And so, you know, I would urge people to think about that as their first go-to. The other one is motivating operations. In other words, asking the animal, why do you want to do this behavior? If the animal doesn't feel the need to behave at all, then it's certainly not going to be easy to train it to do a behavior. That's two. And then I always think one of the things that you should really focus on with your training is to build what we call a shared reinforcement history that we would label as trust or relationship, particularly important with animals that we're working in close contact with in, in those one-to-one -one close contact scenarios. And that's really crucial. And you can do that by teaching simple foundation behaviors. And if you just think about the prerequisite skills that an animal needs to, for example, accept a hand injection or to accept a blood draw, it's things like standing still and targeting and coming to station and shifting and all those very, very simple things. And what that does is not only give the animal those prerequisite skills to succeed in its training program, it helps you learn as a trainer, but it also means that you're not focused on that end goal that can really sometimes make it very difficult to achieve your end goal. We get so worked up in zoos, and I've had this tons of times where I've been told this animal is leaving the collection on this date, non-negotiable that this animal is leaving on that date. What does that do to a trainer? It just massively piles the pressure on. And so one of the things that we've been working on a lot at ZSL is to try and take that pressure away from the keeper, because what happens is the pressure goes on the keeper, and then the, the keeper makes mistakes, 
or rushes through a program and that then translates that the animal can't succeed. So if we just focus on continually making sure that training is actually a thoroughly enjoyable experience both for the animal and the trainer, then you're far more likely to succeed. One recent example of that at Whipsnade Zoo, the keepers were working on uh, trying to move a tiger, crate trainer tiger, and he was just leaving his back leg hanging out, you know, as usual. The guys were working really hard on trying to get the animal to go into the crate by putting all of the food reinforces in the crate and what we did is we just had a chat and decided amongst ourselves to say well actually why don't we just feed him in lots of different locations including the crate and it's his choice whether he wants to go in there or whether he wants to interact with us over here and any interaction with anything he does in this environment he gets reinforced for and in that way within two training sessions the animal was like pressure's off and he went in the crate and they managed to transport him two days later. And that collaborative way of working with the keeper teams is where I find it most rewarding because they're the ones doing the training. They're the ones having the ideas. They know who the animal is. And all I've got to do is go from a fresh pair of eyes, go, ah, oh, I can see what might be the problem here. And we can work together in finding that solution. That is all so, so interesting. And when you put it like that, so easy, so easily laid out with step by step of a process, which, as I say, if done well, really simple, but the true understanding and say credit to yourself and the fellow trainers out there for understanding the animal and really what makes them what they are and able to get from A to B, which is exactly what you've just demonstrated with what you've said. So some cracking, cracking words. Now, can we take you then to, for anyone wanting to learn, for anyone wanting to maybe progress themselves in the training field, what else can they do? How can they push themselves What's out there in form of content, conferences, workshops, and in general, support and help to push them forwards and, and progress them as an animal trainer? You touched on it before, James. We do work in an industry that is very good at networking, you know, so there is several networks that are free to access. So you can join the Biaza Animal Training Behaviour Facebook group if you're on social media. There's an EASA version of that. There's EASA training guidelines that have been recently written by the group with um, special mention to Barbara Heidenreich, an American behaviour consultant consultant who really did lead the way on those on that document and we're finding that to be a really useful tool to help with our progress in terms of training in the uh, European zoo community and um, so there's all those online networks you've got a lot of online material that you can delve into one example is uh, Susan Friedman's behaviorworks.org where you've got tons of different papers and material on there and Susan also is a contributor to our Biaza animal training and accreditation course so if your institution will support you financially or you can you know you can self-fund and pay over a series of installments to do a year-long course I would say that in terms of you know the unique way that we're able to run that course over a period of 37 weeks and it's a true accreditation at level four and that's in collaboration with the Animal Behaviour Training Council which is the government endorsed charity that is setting the standards for animal training in the UK fruit for all different types of animals you know the dog training industry all the way along to us in the zoo industry um, so that's a really useful one if you want to join our course we take on about 20 every year we've currently got 35 Biaza registered animal trainers working across 29 different zoos in the UK so so there's this network building up as well. There's experts working in, in zoos all over the country now, which is fantastic. And then there are lots of obviously other conferences. There's other people doing little workshops, big workshops. I, I think Nikki Plaskett's on your podcast. She does some cool little workshops. The EASA Academy, one to look out for. That's a really good one. We do a pre-conference workshop, which is the very basic level of uh, training. So we tack on to the annual conference. And then there's another event that we've put on. And we put this on specifically. So alongside our work with the ABTC to develop the Biaza 
training accreditation course, part of the standards and to remain on the ABTC register, you need to complete 15 hours of CPD a year. And so we looked at that and thought, well, actually, there's a, an opportunity here to develop an in-person event where you can meet all of those needs. And so we created the Zoo Animal Training Symposium, which is ZATS. And the first one of those is going to be running in November this year up at Yorkshire Wildlife Park. And we particularly partnered with those guys because they helped us put um, one of our Biaza workshops on. And this is a Biaza certified event as well. And so that'd be a really great opportunity to tap into some of the expertise that's out there. Uh, we've got Stuart Tell, who's a famous dog trainer, particularly, and also Annette Peterson coming over from Denmark and Susan Friedman online, plus me, Kim and Joe Mason, who's my colleague. And we co-teach the Biaza course. And in fact, Joe was the person that helped me write the whole course of the, of the Biaza trainer accreditation. There's loads there. Everyone listening is frantically writing down all of these. Some really, really great things out there to help and all very, very vital to pushing us forwards and, and allowing the industry to progress. What I'm going to do now, uh, we're going to go, Jim, to the big questions. Big questions are something we tackle to answer some of the untold questions slash answers within the industry and try and get some hard-hitting answers out of them. So the first one, I don't think it's going to stress you out too much, and that is how is training actually aiding with animal welfare? Wow, that's a really good question. And in fact, there are several welfare benefits of animal training. You can look at it from a point of view where their medical needs are met. So that's a really important part. Um, you could look at it, you know, for, for example, you can have blood samples, you can do hand injections, and you can do things like simple daily management training programs, for example, shifting or transportation. And the reason why they have an, an overall net positive welfare benefit is because the alternative procedure that you'd be using instead of voluntary participation in a training program is you would be using traditional techniques such as manual restraint or chemical restraint, so darting. Those traditional methods, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they aren't as good for the animal welfare as the voluntary participation methods that we use through training. Some really interesting stuff. That's number one complete. Smashed it. Now, number two leads us to training. Obviously, the normal zookeeping role is no longer a one-trick pony. We're required to be 10 different roles in one. It can be hectic, it can be full-on, and at times you can feel like you've got no time. The big question from the industry is, can we fit training in the industry? Some may say no, and that's because of the demand on us on a daily basis. So my question to you, Jim, is can we fit training into our day and can it combine with the generic zookeeping role? Oh, absolutely. I think people can think of training like this, which is I have to prepare, then I have to do the training, then I have to, you know, so it's like a very long period of time. Whereas if you can build it into your daily routine with an animal, it's exactly the same as chopping food and presenting it in, in an enriched way. What we as, as an industry need to do is to realise that behaviour management equally as important as nutrition and veterinary care and the servicing of the enclosure. If you ask an animal what's more important in its life, is it that you picked up its poo or is it that it had um, an, an enriched experience in its day or whether it was um, trained to do a, a procedure rather than be shot at with a dark gun? or manually restrained. And when we put that into perspective and we think about what's right for the animal, then we can think about it from the keeper perspective as well. And I think from a keeper perspective, to be able to build in simple training into a schedule is relatively easy, especially when you think that you should really only be training an animal for a maximum of five minutes at a time. You know, so if you could do 
three or four training sessions a week of five minutes and then say that that's five minutes to get it ready and five minutes to write on your record sheet afterwards it's a very very small amount of time in your week in order to fit in for for a training program and the better we get at training so the more expertise that we have in our industry the less errors we're going to make the less amount of time that we're going to need um to to train our animals and i'm certainly not an advocate for animals to be trained all day long we need it to be part of a you know a structured day where we allow the keepers time to do the training but um, that the animals get to be animals <laughs> in their own space if that makes sense yeah totally a really great answer and that's number two complete now number three leads us to the comparison between an animal keeper role and an animal trainer role we just alluded to it the normal modern day zookeeper is no trick pony it's required to be a nutritionist an animal trainer uh educationist and simply the best for our animals so in the modern day is an animal trainer different to an animal keeper such a great question because i I was having exactly the same dilemma about 10 years ago at zsl as our training program really developed and became an integrated and formalized systematic part of our animal management is how are we going to build capacity for animal training are we going to have to hire in loads of trainers and then help you know because it's it's an area of expertise like i said it's simple in its in its uh, concept but it's not easy and our decision was to try and upskill all of the staff so that almost an inclusivity program so inclusive of all the taxonomic groups and all the species and individuals but also for all the keepers now that's not to say that every single zookeeper is going to be a great animal trainer or even want to do it and so you know there might be areas where you say okay isn't everyone's area of expertise but i've found that over the years everyone really enjoys it and to make it part of an, a zookeeper's role is the right way to go because it means that we're going to have more opportunities implement our training program across the two zoos because if you just cherry pick individuals you're never going to get the same amount of impact you might have not exactly the same amount of expertise but i think it evens itself out it's amazing, isn't it, what's happened with zookeeping since I started in 1999, the change in what's expected of a zookeeper. I mean, it really was a glorified poo shoveler, I think, is the uh, is the expression, isn't it? And nowadays, you know, their expectations are totally transformed. You know, you're doing data collection for research, you know, writing and, and implementing training programs, enrichment programs, diet management. It's amazing what, um, what a zookeeper does now. And I think it's a really positive step forward for the industry. Great way to end that question. And Lee, us to the very last question of the big questions Jim we're very nearly there this question is very very simple and that is within our enclosure designs it's crucial to incorporate training to enhance our welfare and the furthering of our knowledge of this so the question I've got for you is within our enclosures what should we be looking at what little hints and tips have you got for incorporating an enclosure design with good training techniques? I mean, I, I look at animal enclosures with a, a sort of wider perspective than animal training. First of all, and I'm sure this is considered in most enclosure design, but if you can meet a lot of the behavioural needs of your animal, then training is easier. Because if an animal is fulfilled in its environment, in other words, there's lots of live planting, screening, opportunities to for locomotion, prolonged feeding and foraging, all those those really important parts of an animal's overall behavioural needs, then you're going to have an animal that's more rounded and then more susceptible to learning. And so that is a really important part of it, which sounds like 
not related to the physical act of training an animal, but it's extremely important. Then it comes down to your carefully considered antecedent arrangement. If you want to train a primate, you don't want to do it on the ground. So you want to have training shelves. If you want to train a crocodile, you want to have a large area of land and then a, a reasonably large area of water with relatively shallow water so you can submerge crates. If you want to train birds, then again, you might want to um, have areas where you can bring individual species in into um, and then train them in those locations. So I think it's too broad broader question to be able to say you need to do this one thing it's a big thing <laughs> if that makes sense absolutely you'd be happy to know you've smashed those questions you've made it through to the other side but i just want to i want to i just want to add there james the fact that you're asking what should be considered when it comes to animal training is such huge progress because it's still it's still an area where i would say that in the design phase behavior experts aren't necessarily always ask that question so the fact is just ask the expert in your zoo what do you need to make your training program a success and then add that into the program rather than retro fitting everything that's great to hear the real progress going on in this industry and you're exactly right communication is such a large word in this industry currently and it is about talking to each other sharing knowledge and and reaching for help where needed and when you've got these experts in the field you know your accredited trainers and simply these passionate people who specialize in this field why not ask the questions? So I could not agree more. And I'm sure there's more to come from the likes of yourself and these amazing people from the industry in years to come. Now, you'll be happy to know, Jim, as we've said, we've smashed the big questions. We've got them out of the way. We're now moving on to the last part of this podcast episode, and that is the quick questions. These can either fly by or, as we're starting to learn, take a little time which for the eruption of information so we'll see how we get on now your first one is quite a simple one and that is what is your favorite animal so probably favorite animal that i've ever seen in the wild was a duckbill platypus which i saw in the atherton tablelands in australia and it just blew my mind i was told that i had to get up an hour before dawn and cycle to this little creek you might see the platypus no no guarantee as the sun rose and it was just getting towards uh, dawn i saw five individual platypus swimming and coming up to the bank and to this day I, I can feel like I'm there watching these little animals they were just brilliant but can I have two because I also love going just to Norfolk and seeing barn owls flying around as well so those are probably my two favorites two very good choices there and that platypus story you've just sold that's almost movie worthy <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah. incredible now number two then what is the best part of this industry if, if you look at it from the industry point of view I think from a zookeeper point of view we are just so incredibly privileged to work on a daily basis with these amazing animals. I mean, I remember the very first day I, I worked at London Zoo as a volunteer and I was doing a similar thing that I'd done in you know, my last animal job, which was on the pig farm. And I was sweeping up and then suddenly I looked up and there was an acarpi. And I just thought, what? That is just ridiculous that I'm just doing this job and there's this animal right next to me or you know in the in the stable next door or the enclosure next door that doesn't leave you if you if you really love animals then that never goes away does it you know I, I worked with the great one horned rhino for the first time in a close contact scenario the other day and that still blows you away marabou stalks the other day so that is clearly the best side of it i suppose as well if you you add to that the people because i've met so many brilliant people with the same 
passions as I have, you know, the idea that zoos can help in conservation, that um, we can reach people and talk to people out there in the public and, and make a real difference to animal welfare. Some really great words. Now, the next one, I apologise, is not a quick question. What is your top tip for mental health and well-being? I mean, it's become incredibly important, hasn't it, in the modern day workplace, whether that's in the zoo or not. And, you know, when you look at some of the online forums and you see this is a really big area and, and a, an area that needs to be addressed. For me, the thing that most sort of helped me in terms of my efforts towards being in a good place mentally at the, in the workplace was being able to specialize into an area that I really enjoyed. And then later on, and this didn't happen until much later, was able to put some kind of balance between work and normal life. That really only came about because I'm lucky enough that I can do one day a week at home and do all my admin stuff, you know, at home. The commute, if you work at London Zoo, if you work anywhere around London, the commute just into town, it can be four hours a day. So these sort of things, you know, you need to take into consideration. And then there's the the other element, which is compassion fatigue. You know, there's a lot of people that I've worked with that have just couldn't cope with the fact that show sensitivity and empathy and it doesn't always work. And so how do you cope with that? And I'm not really sure I have an answer for that one you know i'm looking forward to listening to more of your podcasts to see if any of your other experts have an answer to that <laughs> because there is a major issue there isn't there in terms of how do you cope with all these um animals that you look after that you know might not make it and have difficult situations maybe the answer to that is we get better at what we do yeah very much so and let me spin that question around for you not a pretty range question so prepare yourself what is the best tip for mental health for our animals wow that's really interesting isn't it we just don't consider it do we we think about their welfare and one of the things that we're looking at actually at the iaza conference this year is we're teaming up with the animal welfare group and we're talking about animal emotions and so actually even though you didn't tell me about that question it couldn't be more appropriate and it's an area where I'm still finding my feet, if I'm honest, because what we do as behaviorists, we look at animal behavior. We don't think about what the animal is or what it's feeling or thinking. We think about what it does. And the reason we do that is because we know we can receive data and we can work on that. But what I know that is happening a lot more in the in the field of animal behavior, and this is not just zoos, of course, it's all over. They're trying to be able to give us measurements, so behavioral measurements to tell us what the animal is feeling, what its, its emotional state is like. And so this comes down to that fifth domain, you know, which is quite a difficult area, the fifth, dom fifth domain of um, welfare, which is uh, psychological. And I think it's still a work in progress, but I know for a fact that if we can provide the animal with the opportunity to meet all its behavioural needs, we can reduce stress by using things like voluntary participation in their own medical care, and um, that we can upskill our staff so they can understand what these animals are behaving like and then hopefully what their emotional state is like, then perhaps we can make a big difference. And I do think that there is, uh, this is the future, you know, this is where we, we, we're going to go to next is how do we think about these animals in a much more specific way about their overall behavioural but also emotional needs? Um, it's a massive question, isn't it, James? Very well done and very well played for something I've just sprung on you. So thank you very much for that answer. Now, the next question i've got for you is what do you feel we need to improve within this industry transparency are we really happy if we were to put cameras absolutely everywhere and have a live feed for all of our zoos in the country to go straight online is there anything that we'd want to edit i do feel like we need to be clear transparent and be out there with everything we do and if there's things that we aren't happy with then we need to change it 
And I do think that that's an area where we've let ourselves down in the past. I think we're getting better at it, but I still think there's a hell of a lot of long way to go for the zoo industry to be truly transparent. Yeah, totally. I, I couldn't agree more. I think transparency is key. It's definitely something we're hearing throughout these podcasts. And I think zoos need to shout more, you know, about the good, the bad, and simply what we are. You know, we are such a diverse unit now. We cover a whole array of different categories, different topics, and we are the front runners behind the true well-being and, and the future of our wildlife and our ecosystems. So zoos play a massive role in that and, and definitely need to shout more about it. So could not agree more. Now, the next question I've got for you could take you anywhere in this world. And that is where globally would you like to visit ZooWise and why? Brilliant question. The first one I want to say is San Diego, just because... Um... It's such a famous zoo, and I've been working the last couple of years with Jessica Sheftel, who's on the science team there. They've developed a new behavior program called Enriched Experiences, which is just fascinating. And so they've been giving me loads of their time and information. We're trying to roll something like that out at ZSL. And I just like to go there and just see what it's really like. Also, Nikki Boyd, who's the curator of behavioral husbandry there, um, she helped me massively when I was setting up the training program at ZSL. And so I'd love just to go there and see how they did it. But if I could pick another one as well, if I may, it would be uh, the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo because that's where Susan Friedman does a lot of consultancy and there's um, some of the guys there, they've been working on their training program over the last few years. And I think that'd be a really interesting zoo to visit as well. And Amy Shields, who does the, particularly the giraffe training, but she did a, a lecture for us for the uh, Biaza course. And it was just fascinating to see the way that they've gone. And I've got a third one, Singapore, because Luke Harding, who's on our Iaza training working group, he's just started there as a curator of herps. And I want to go and see what all the fuss is about with Singapore because it's supposed to be brilliant, isn't it? Three really, really great answers. Obviously, San Diego being the true pop culture zoo, the real trendsetters. And they're the one that capture everyone's imagination. Obviously, whether you be a zookeeper to the general members of the public, they are one of the giants in the field and they are doing some amazing work. So could not agree more with that one. Uh, Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, an amazing collection. We haven't actually had that on the podcast yet. But I couldn't agree more. Do some incredible work and are very world renowned for that. So could not agree more. Now, finally, you said Singapore, obviously four zoos, just reconstructed the whole bird park. Incredible. Night safari, daytime zoo, river safari, and now this bird park on top of it. Speaks for itself. Absolutely amazing. Some cracking answers. Now, the next question I've got for you then. In 20 to 30 years, put on your mystic cat, do you still see zoos being the same as they are today? No, they just can't be. You know, nothing stands still. I think back, you know, I've done 24 years and wow, things have changed in that time to the point where, you know, I remember when I was was asking whether I could train an animal that I was working with. I'm not going to say which one, but, you know, it was because we were pushing these animals in from an outside space to the inside space using brooms. And I was like, you know, we can just blow a whistle and they'll come inside. <laughs> we can feed them. And I was basically, without being put through a disciplinary process, it was close. So we're talking now, 24 years later, things are just completely changed. And the same with our behavior programs. So things are changing a lot. I think we're going to get have to get far stricter in terms of welfare. I think the new st Secretary of State standards, you know, you think that in 20 or 30 years, what are we going to be doing differently? I mean, it's just, I can't even begin to think really. I do think technology is going to be playing a huge part in whatever we do in terms of the future of zoos. Not sure exactly what that means, but, you know, from a, even just from a management point, 
point of view, if we want animals to shift from one place to another, are we going to need to be present all the time? Can we do more remote operated shifting systems and stuff like that to take a bit of pressure off the keepers and, and not rely so much on that um, human-animal relationship? Who knows? A really great answer. And I think exactly that. Who knows what's to come? But what I can say is with people like yourself, Jim, at the helm, only good things I'm sure to come. So let that carry on and keep growing this amazing industry. Now, the next question I've got for you is who within this industry is your idol? Okay, so the first name that popped into my head when I read this question was Gerald Durrell. He's the reason why I became interested in zoos in the first place. So I was really interested in animals. I'd had my own birds of prey and animals at home. So I was really, I had that passion for nature already. You know, I spent three summers at the British School of Falconry with the uh, the Fords there. So they were kind of my pre-zoo idols, if you like, in the in that world. But then when I started to read about Gerald Durrell, and particularly about his work developing the Jersey Zoo, that is really what inspired my interest in wanting to work in a zoo. You know, I, f I feel like that organisation still, you know, has that appeal. But Gerald Durrell, absolutely. I mean, he transformed the way that zoos were you know, thought about, the work they did. I think that there'd be hardly any zookeeper of my age anyway <laughs> that wouldn't say more or less the same thing. It's Gerald Durrell, it's David Attenborough. David Attenborough for your nature documentaries, Gerald Durrell for his work in the zoo. Um, so yeah, 100%, that would be my um, idol in the in the zoo industry. Yeah, truly iconic and some really lovely words. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. Now, we're on to that final question of the podcast, the final one. I want you now, Jim, one of the hardest questions of the whole thing, to sum up this whole industry we work in, in only three words. So I think important is one word, um, developing and probably misunderstood. And I think you'll, you'll all know what I mean by that last one. A very nice way to sum up this whole industry and to sum up this episode in one. Now, thank you so much for coming on. Before we do come to a conclusion on this, though, I'm going to chuck back at you, Jim, one last time, the opportunity to talk all things training. Why should someone get involved? Why is it so amazing? And what really is the need to be involved with this amazing element to this industry being animal training we've got a great opportunity here james which is to really bring us a, a, an element of scientific application into the way that we care about our animals and that is from the way that we monitor them and observe them the data that we collect and then the way that we apply the principles of behavior science now in order to do that well we need to educate ourselves we need to make sure that we're the best that we possibly can be at applying those principles in our animal training and behavior programs and the way to do that is through your own personal development you know, looking on those online courses and talking to people, getting into the networks, um, talk to us in the Biaza community, and then, you know, getting your institution to back you. Because again, one of the things with the new Secretary of State standards, if, if you're in a Biaza zoo, is that um, CPD is going to be part of that. You know, zoos are going to have to, you know, step up and um, start to support. And we know through the Biaza course already that 29 institutions, and that's not even thinking of next year another 40 people have applied there's another 40 zoos putting their keepers through these these courses so they're they're financially backing keepers so reach out to your hr department reach out to your senior managers and say i want to become an expert in training and we'll we'll help you do that you know with, with, through these courses so yeah and come along to our zoo animal training symposium as well in yorkshire wildlife park we're going to be doing more of those and any eaza academy events as well so please come along and you know the community of animal training is really lovely 
you know, everyone's so giving. <laughs> you know, that's the one thing I'll say is everyone that I speak to in that field is so willing to share all their expertise as well. So you could just, you know, talk to your local friendly animal trainer. And that wraps up the episode. Thank you so, so much, Jim, from myself and the listeners for coming on. You're way too humble. It's a true honour and privilege to have someone of your stature within the animal training field on this episode and this podcast overall sharing your your journeys and your stories throughout this industry and throughout your life so far so thank you so much for coming on and being part of zookeeping 101 it's been an absolute pleasure i really love what you're doing with these podcasts i've listened to the ones that you've released at the time of uh, us doing this and they're fantastic so you know congratulations and hello to all the other podcast contributors because um, i pretty much know know you all which is great no it's been great having you on and hopefully we'll get you on again very soon thanks james take care And that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook, or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey, learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.